Before I proceed with this morning's introduction, I want to set the record straight and tell you that I have never seen, nor will I ever watch, a single episode of either The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, which are TV programs on ABC. Now, that's not a judgment on you who watch that show, but since we're there, I have to ask you, why would you ever, why would you ever as a Christian watch a program with such immorality and voyeurism? Now, I mention that because if I have misunderstood or misinterpreted what actually happened a few weeks ago on the episode in question, it's because I never actually saw it. It's available on YouTube, but again, I refuse to watch it. What I'm about to share with you is information that's based on an article that appeared two weeks ago on a Christian news site, as well as two separate blogs that I read. And according to those articles on the program The Bachelorette, a bachelor named Luke informs the bachelorette Hannah what he believes about sex outside of marriage. And although he confesses that he's not a virgin himself, he makes it clear to Hannah that from now on he's committed to abstaining from sex until he is married. And then he informs the bachelorette Hannah that if she has been physically intimate, with other contestants on that program, he will withdraw himself from the show. Now, Hannah is a professing Christian, and she takes offense at Luke's comments and admits that she has had physical relations. She's slept with some of the other contestants and then declares confidently that Jesus still loves her. And then she proceeds to say, regardless of anything that I've done, I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed and if the Lord doesn't judge me and it's all forgiven, then no other man or woman or anything can judge me. And then she closes her little soapbox homily by saying, as many do, Nobody's going to judge me. I won't stand for it. And then according to the promotional clip for the show, Hannah flips off Luke as he is leaving. Now I have no idea where that story line is currently going, and frankly, I don't care. The question that I want to ask this morning is this. What are you and I to make of all this? My guess is that most people who were watching that show probably saw Luke as the villain and Hannah as the heroine. Luke was viewed as a prude, legalistic, self-righteous Pharisee who has failed to grasp what freedom in Christ really means. And Hannah is the sophisticated, liberated, enlightened person who's moved beyond the puritanical, out of touch with reality, thinking of the Bible. And I got to tell you that my concern is that the perspective, the attitude, the thinking of Hannah 
is all too common among Christians today. Now I hope, I I sincerely hope that I have misunderstood Hannah's comments. And if you've watched the show and are willing to confess to it, maybe you can set me straight at the end of the message. But the question that I want to ask this morning, is it true that Jesus still loves us when we sin? And the answer, of course, is yes. God's love is unwavering, and all of us sin, and it may not be a sin that's of a sexual nature, but we still sin as Christians in countless ways. And as such, speaking for myself at least, I am incredibly grateful for the compassionate love and forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But is Hannah's way of thinking truly Christian? Are you and I as Christians free to minimize our sin based on the fact that, well, Jesus will still love me? I I find myself greatly troubled by her statements. I find myself greatly disturbed by the thinking and the nonsense that I see prevalent today among Christians who think that they can do whatever. And if Hannah is asserting her freedom to behave in any way she sees fit, that she is under the moral authority of no one, She is incredibly naive. And maybe, just maybe, she's not even a Christian. Can I remind us all this morning that true Christian freedom is the joy of doing whatever Jesus commands us to do? Not whatever we might prefer. And of great concern to me is that we are tolerating We are excusing, we are permitting, and in some cases promoting behavior that is totally contrary to the Word of God. I've mentioned before that I graduated from Dallas Seminary 40 years ago, just a a few weeks ago. Well, just a few weeks ago was the 40-year anniversary, that's what I meant by that. But you know, if you had told me 40 years ago when I began ministry that it would be necessary for me to preach on this text with the particular focus that I'm going to bring to it today, I probably would have laughed in your face and written you off as either being incredibly naive or overly pessimistic. But sometimes you've got to just lay it on the line. You've got to tell it like it is. And there are some things that are so patently obvious in the Bible that one simply takes them for granted that everyone who has spent any time in church would understand this. But you know what? I was wrong. Today, the problem is is real and it is pervasive. And what I want to do is I want to talk about what I think is all too often a tolerated sin among Christians. Your Bible should be open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
And what I want to do is start by, by looking at a word that is used frequently in the New Testament to describe sexual immorality. It's the Greek word pornea. We get our English word pornography from it. And one of the things that I think is important to remember is that the Greek word pornea is not referring primarily to visual portrayals of sexual activity. One of the things that's very, very important for us to do is to never read back into New Testament words the meaning of our modern English words. Instead, what we have to do is allow the New Testament to define its terminology in its own way. And the noun pornea means the sexually immoral, and the verb simply means to commit sexual immorality. And together, those two words, the noun and the verb, appear 42 times in the New Testament. And obviously, we don't have the time this morning to cite them all, but let me just mention a few of them. And if you're taking notes, you might want to jot these references down, and you can go back and look at them. Jesus, in Matthew 15, 19, says, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, or pornea, theft, false witness, and slander. In 1 Corinthians 5.1, Paul, writing to a church in Corinth, says that it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality, pornea, among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. What was the pornea? Well, a man had his father's wife. A little later in that same chapter, in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 5, 11, he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of pornea, sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. We're, we're not to even eat with such a one. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, in what I suggested at the men's Bible study on Tuesday morning is the most politically incorrect verse in our Bible. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the pornea, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality shall inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, let me just, let me just pause here and point out that whereas adultery and homosexuality are forms of pornea or sexual immorality, pornea is a much broader term. And it includes all sexual activity before or outside the marriage relationship. Later in that same book, in chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Please note that God clearly created the human body for a purpose. And that purpose is not sexual immorality. So when a person engages in sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage, they are violating the very purpose for which God created them. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
In 1 Corinthians 7, 2, he says, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In 1 Corinthians 10, 8, he says, we are not to indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. In verses that we'll be looking at in the fall in Galatians 5, 19, Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Ephesians 5, 3 says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. In Ephesians 5, or rather Ephesians 5, 5, he says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Please note that, that Paul doesn't just single this sin out exclusively. He's not suggesting that this sin is worse than other sins of the flesh. It's all a sin before God. Paul in Colossians 3.5 says that we're to put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Hebrews 13.4 says that the marriage bed is to be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And finally, in Revelation 21.8, it says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I could have cited far more verses than just those. But here's what I want you to understand this morning. There's no gray area here. There's no qualifications, no exceptions given. None of those verses is subject to a special nuance or interpretation that, that gets us off the hook. The Bible is clear that all expressions of pornea or sexual immorality are forbidden. And they're seen as defiling, evil, improper, sinful, fleshly, earthly behavior that is against the will of God. And it's a behavior that opens people up to divine judgment. If you haven't learned this yet, please know this. The only context in which sexual intimacy is permitted is the one flesh union between a husband and wife who have committed themselves one to the other through the covenant of marriage. And any other sexual activity that occurs before or outside of the union of a husband and wife is prohibited. It is to be avoided. It is to be abstained from especially by those who claim to be followers of Jesus. And I think one of the most important things for us to remember as we talk about sexual purity this morning is to remember that God is for you. He's for your success. 
He's reason for your victory in this area of your life. And, and the reason I say that is that people often see God as their adversary. You know, they think that God is some old, mean curmudgeon up there in heaven, that he's against me, that he's repulsed by me, he's ashamed of what I've done. And the reason God has given this is because he just doesn't care. He doesn't love us. Friend, that is not true. That is a misconception that is being fed by so many people. And the end result is that people find themselves in a seemingly hopeless situation that tragically drives them further away from the arms of him who can give them victory. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ who's given us the Holy Spirit to enable us victory over this war with the flesh. Can I state the obvious this morning? No one wants your happiness and victory more than God. And I know that might sound bizarre, but it's true. And you know what? He knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for me. He knows what will lead to optimum flourishing and the deepest satisfaction of your soul. He knows what will bring us the greatest happiness in this life and in the next. He's our creator. He's the one who's formed us and shaped us within the womb of our mother. And I think it's so, so critically important that we be reminded that God never commands anything that does not ultimately serve to enhance and deepen our welfare and our joy and our capacity to flourish as individuals. And I hope you believe that. I hope you are committed to that this morning. Look at your Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4, look at verse 3. Paul says, I've given you these instructions, I gave them to you earlier. And by the way, the church at Thessalonica was a church living in a culture not much different than ours. There were professing Christians like Luke and Hannah Right there. And so Paul has to write a letter and he has to put it right there on the bottom shelf. And that he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. You should be set apart. You should be different. You should be holy. And how is that manifested? By avoiding sexual immorality. And you know what, I, I know that we come up with all kinds of excuses to ignore this clear declaration of God's word and sort of set it aside and say it's outdated. And I want you to know that I've heard all of the excuses or at least some variation of them. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't really address my situation specifically. I, I'm unique, Doug. Some say, well, how can something so healthy and life-giving and loving be wronged? Doug, everybody's doing it. And then one that I find most disturbing is when people say, well, Doug, the Bible doesn't carry that kind of authority with me. And then they like to throw down what they think is a trump card by saying, well, Jesus said, judge not that ye be judged, and who are you to judge me? 
Can I tell you what my response is when I hear that? Whose opinion matters more to you? Your own or God's? You know, it doesn't matter what I want or what I believe is best for my interest or what makes me feel good. When God says no, he means no. It's not a maybe. And I defer to his authority and wisdom. And I know that he has only my best interest at heart. And if you're here this morning feeling and thinking that God's opposed to you, please remember that he isn't. God's word is not impractical, wrong, or oppressive. God is there cheering us on. And he's saying, I want to, to give you the best life possible. And the reason people come up with all of these excuses is because their heart is rebellious, wicked, and sick with sin. God's will for your life and my life is that we be sanctified, that we be set apart unto God. See verse 3 again, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. You know, we sang about that, dear saints. Not impassionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. You know what he's saying here? Don't believe the lies the world is peddling you. These restrictions are not God's way of robbing you of fun and pleasure. It is God's way of intensifying the enjoyment that can be yours within the parameters of God's will. These instructions are given to protect and preserve the beauty and the joy of the marital union. And when we choose to violate that, we're undermining the ability of our hearts to deeply enjoy the multifaceted joys that God provides for his children. And when we choose to just disregard this, it diminishes our capacity to feel God's delight in who we are. It drains us of his power and hardens us to the loving overtures of his spirit. He says, he says in verse 4, he says, I want you to learn to control your own body. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. That word control your own body means to gain mastery over something. And he's saying here, I want you to live each day in control of your own impulses. I want you to submit your body to God in holiness and honor. Look at verse 5. This is insightful. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. You know what he's saying here as a Christian? You were meant for better things. And we, we besmirch our dignity as image bearers and rob our bodies of their divinely ordained function when we step outside the bounds of God's will. And we seek satisfaction in ways he knows will only bring disaster, disrespect, and I gotta say it oftentimes, disease. 
Friend, make no mistake about it. God's will is that he will, he calls us to, to purity and God will not permit his children to sin with impunity. There are consequences. There always are. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, and that is this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Evidently there were some who were saying, well, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We can go ahead and behave this way. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. He said, the Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Hebrews 12 says that God chastens and disciplines us because he loves us. Listen, impurity runs counter to everything God has in mind when he created us and called us and redeemed us in Jesus. Now the question you have to ask and answer is, well, is there hope? You know, am I, am I just subject to this, these, these desires that I have within? Look at verse 8, and I love this. He says, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject human beings, but God, the very God who gives you his spirit. Friend, that is a great verse of Scripture, and here's why. That verb that is found in verse 8, gives, is in the present tense. And here's what makes this unique. Normally, when Paul would refer to the gift of the Holy Spirit, he does so in the past tense. And what he says by that is when you and I come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, God gives us his Holy Spirit. But he doesn't use the past tense here. He uses the present. And that is so incredibly instructive. And Paul's point is this, God is committed to us as seen in the ongoing, ever-present impartation of his Spirit And God is perpetually sustaining and supporting us through the Spirit, even now, in the midst of our struggle over whether or not we're going to obey Him in regards to sexual purity. His Spirit is there. Listen, if you're here as a Christian this morning, God's Spirit resides within you. And you know what He's there to do? He's there to encourage, to energize, and enable us on to victory. In other words, what Paul is saying in that verse is the God who says that my will for you is not to submit to the temptations of the world or the passions of the flesh is also the God who says I'm right now giving you my Holy Spirit to help you say yes to purity and to gain victory over sin. And you know what he's saying? He's saying come to me. Come to me. I'm not here to put you to shame. I'm not here to ridicule you, but to restore you. I'm here to cleanse you. I'm here to quicken your soul with divine energy so that you can say no to illicit urges. And I will do it by setting before you the surpassing delights of trusting in my promise of superior pleasures. 
You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying there's hope. But not only is there hope, there's help. I like that. You know why? Because whatever God requires of us, he also provides. And God requires holiness, so he provides the infinite power of the Holy Spirit to assist you and me in gaining victory. And what he's saying here in this passage of Scripture is don't despair, don't give up, don't quit. Don't resign yourself to live in bondage. And my concern is that some people just give up and they quit. Or some tragically don't care. And truth be known, the latter is the most disturbing, disheartening aspect of this message. You know what Paul is saying here in this passage of Scripture? He's saying God's Spirit is ever-present in you. And through His Spirit, He wants to empower you to purity, to holiness, and to sanctification. God's not a killjoy. He's not out to rob us of our fleshly pleasures. But He is, however, determined to protect the sanctity of that experience so that we can enjoy it to the fullest. And right now, I, I, you know, I've been doing this long enough. I know what some of you are thinking. It's a gift. I'm a mind reader. Just kidding. Some of you are saying, Doug, you're nothing, but more, nothing more than an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy, completely out of touch and lagging far behind the times in which we live. Doug, you, you, you don't understand. Our culture has long since abandoned your vision of sexual ethics. And you know what? You're right. Our culture has gone beyond that. To where Luke and Hannah can talk openly about what they were talking about. And again, I did not see the episode. And if you did, and I'm misrepresenting it in any way, you correct me. But friend, let me just say, when it comes to what we are to believe is true and how we are to behave in terms of the world and its standards, I couldn't care less what the world thinks. My concern is what the Bible teaches. And culture and popular opinion have no bearing whatsoever on whether something is true or false or whether or not something is good or evil. And here's the takeaway. At the core of Christianity and being a Christian is a voluntary, enthusiastic submission to the Scriptures as our highest authority. And when people want to continue living in unrepentant sexual sin, you may call yourself culturally sophisticated, you may call yourself socially liberated. You may call yourself in step with the changing times, but please, please, for the sake of the church and for the sake of Jesus Christ, just don't call yourself a Christian. Repent, get right with God, 
and determined by God's grace that you're going to live a life of purity. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have that Spirit of God residing within you to give you that victory. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and I'd invite you to do that. To simply turn to God right now and say, Lord Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner, that you died for me, and I want to put my trust, my hope, my confidence exclusively in you. And when you do that, you're born again, and you're in the family of God. And God gives you his Holy Spirit to give you the victory over sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the blessings of your word. Thank you, Father, that we've not been left to uh, human understanding or human reasoning or human rationale as to how we are to live our lives. The truth, Father, this morning has been set clearly before us. And so we pray that without hesitancy, we would be willing to live it out and challenge others to do the same. Seal, I pray these truths to our heart this morning by the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And together as God's people this morning, we pray towards that end in his name. And everybody agreed and said, amen.